very encouraged by our time of worship this morning. I think, I was thinking actually on the way over to church today, how um, I, I really resonate with Paul when he says, I give thanks at all times and all my remembrance of you. Uh, this church, uh, I'm constantly, I think every day I wake up and I am thankful for this body of believers. Uh, even I think back a couple of years ago, three or four years ago when we first started attending and visiting, and we'd come, we'd come down from Seattle to visit family and constantly be encouraged and already been built up by our time in worship together, singing as a body of believers, obviously led by these great uh, worship leaders. And um, really, uh, I was amening my way through Chad's pastoral prayer. I was just so encouraged to hear that, and I'm sure you were as well. And um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a delight to be here. I'm so encouraged um, by each one of you, and it's, a, it's definitely a, a pleasure to, to worship with you this morning. Uh, one note about uh, this morning's message before we look at our text. It's on false teachers, and considering the content of what we're going to be talking about, I thought it would be wise to actually not have a PowerPoint slide. You know, often I will do that. Um, Kendall's very happy about that. Uh, I won't afflict her with that responsibility. But really because I want you to be engaged in the text. And so if you didn't bring a Bible, we do have Bibles over uh, at the corner. Feel free to go get up and grab one. We will be looking at quite a few cross-references to kind of get clarity on what the text is saying. But I want you to see for yourselves what the Bible's seeing. You'll be able to see these phrases in context. That's one of the dangers of just showing a, a cross-reference on a slide is you don't necessarily get the context around it. And feel free as you're reading to go beyond maybe what I talk about and see more. You know, allow the Spirit to work in your hearts to, to teach you um, even as I preach from other parts of the Scripture. So we're going to be looking at a number of different texts. But our primary text today is Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. One through three. So if you will flip in your Bibles to that, I will do so likewise. Second Peter chapter two. Verses one through three. But false prophets also arose among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So thanks again for prioritizing, coming to uh, listen, hear the Word of God, to worship alongside of one another uh, instead of watching the Super Bowl like so many of our uh, fellow countrymen are doing at the moment. And sport has actually been on my mind as I uh, was looking at this text earlier this week, not so much because I'm a Seahawks fan, though I am, but really actually because of this text. And it's okay if you don't see the connection, um, but the connection was clear to me because of the way I've often heard people talk about false teachers. 
hearing whether it's fellow believers or even in some sermons, often the way they speak of false teachers is almost the same way that they would speak of a rival football team with the same sort of smugness as if false teachers were just advocates of some other team that's not your own. And so there's something to kind of be looked down upon and maybe despised in some sense. And those who follow them are simply wrong because they should be rooting for your team and not the other team. And that's often how it comes across, that it's just this gamesmanship, that false teachers are just people who don't believe what you preach. There's people at a church, another building down the road, and we're just not supposed to like them because they're not a part of our team. And that's anything but what Peter is trying to communicate to us here. This is a horrific text. And the people that Peter is talking about are in a deplorable condition. This is not something to take lightly. It's not a game. And so as we look at this, that's why we need to take this seriously. And it's hard. It's, it, it, this has been a challenging text for me to, 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 to preach on because of... I've heard, I mean, I have heard really good preaching on false teachers, but I've also been so influenced by bad teaching that, I, the, that I've been challenged. How do, I, how do you present this? And I think it's that it is deadly serious and not something to... We shouldn't use the phrase false teacher lightly. Or when we use it, not just to use it to describe people we disagree with, but recognize what they really are and the destruction that they actually bring in their wake. And so in the outline, I break down Peter's description of the false teachers this way. He talks about their inevitability, that they're going to come, their effects, their motives, their method, and he closes with an assurance of their condemnation. Let's look first at the inevitability the false teachers, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. We're not told why Peter is certain why they're going to happen. And maybe because this was something that was revealed to him in some sort of prophecy. It could be that he just thought it was inevitable because some teachers in other parts of Asia Minor had already started teaching these very things. That's possible. It could also be that he simply understood that this is the way Satan has always worked from the very beginning. He twists God's word and that's how he gets people away from God and really controls them. Remember what he said? In his first interaction with Eve, did God really say? It just twists the words of God. And we are still feeling the effects of that lie. And Peter introduces his warning about false teachers pointing back to Israel's past. He had just mentioned in the paragraph before the prophets who had uh, received prophecy not by their own will, but 
These men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And in that line of thinking, he points out that just as there were prophets that spoke according to the will of God, there will also be false prophets. There were false prophets that emerged among Israel. Literally, the false prophets came to be. And it implies that there was a change that took place, that there was a time when there wasn't false teaching, false prophecy, that it, the truth was unfettered and clear. And then these false prophets emerged and twisted it and distorted the truth. And Moses warned Israel against such people. Moses himself knew that this was going to happen. So even right before Moses passes away, he wrote the book of Deuteronomy as he passes on his leadership to Joshua. And this was one of the emphases that he made in that book, in the book of Deuteronomy. Beware of false prophets. And there were two kinds of false prophets that Moses warned them about. There was one kind who would say that God had directly spoken to them when he hadn't. Um, Jeremiah uses the phrase uh, when the false prophets would come to him and say, the Lord has given me a burden. That is, God has put something into my mind or my heart to communicate to you when he hadn't. And the second kind of false prophet was those who, pro- those who prophesied true things. They actually foretold events that would come to pass. But then they used that supernatural power to lead other Israelites astray. And the first kind is mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 18. So if you would flip to Deuteronomy 18, it's worth looking at these warnings. So that first kind of prophet, again, was the kind that would say God had spoken to them when he actually hadn't. So Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 and 22. Moses writes, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how, how may we know that what the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is the word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So these are not prophets that need to be feared, but they are worthy of capital punishment. But they don't speak from God. The second prophet, false prophet, is described in Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. Just a few pages earlier. Deuteronomy 13. Verse 1, if a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded. 
you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the phrase, make you leave the way, is important to note. Because Peter's going to capitalize on that same imagery in the text we're looking at today in verse 3. It's also interesting to note that God used false prophets to really test the faith of Israel. Would they truly hold fast to them when there was somebody that might lead them astray? Tested their faith. But going back to Peter... Peter's point is that just as there were false prophets in Israel from the beginning, it's inevitable that false teachers will also arise within the church. And that's a sobering thing for us. But we're familiar with it. We see it in our own country and we can look throughout history and see the effects of false teachers. And the distinction between a false prophet and a false teacher is that a false prophet will claim that he is speaking from God, whereas a false teacher just twists what God has said. They, they use the scripture in order to uh, teach something of their own invention. And so although both are different, they're both extremely destructive to the church. And really what Peter points out first is they're destructive for themselves. He says that these false teachers will bring in destructive heresies. The phrase bring in means to cause something to come about by introducing factors from the outside. That is, the false teachers are introducing doctrines and teachings that are not derived from the Scripture. They're derived from some other place. It could be from their own speculation, some other religion, some other worldly philosophy. But the point is their doctrines are not derived from Scripture. In fact, the word heresies that's used in the ESV is actually the word, could be translated, doctrines. In fact, that's how it's typically translated in Greek. In ancient Greece and Rome, heresies described the doctrinal statement or the teachings of a specific school or thought or a a teacher, what a teacher believed So it didn't actually have a negative connotation. The negative connotation developed actually during the first century with the early church. Because they would have people bringing in teachings that were outside of scripture. And the church would say, that's not what we believe. That's not not part of our teaching. That's from the outside. It is from another school of thought. So that's where it got its negative connotation. So simply put, a heresy is essentially a non-biblical teaching. A teaching that just comes from outside of Scripture. It's not derived from the Bible. But although the word heresy is actually somewhat benign in its origins, the effects of this heresy that Peter's speaking to is anything but benign. These teachings are destructive. Peter clarifies that such non-biblical teaching will actually destroy people as well as the church. They're destructive because the mere inclusion of such teachings alongside Scripture suggests that the Scripture isn't sufficient. That the Bible doesn't really give you what you need to live out the life that God has called you to live. You need something else. You need some additional information to actually live the life God has called you to live. They're inadequate. Despite what people, uh, Peter had said earlier in verse 3 of chapter 1, that God has given us, 
his divine power and granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We do have everything we need, but this this heresy assumes we don't. You need something in addition. This false teacher's insight or some other philosophy to really give you what you need to live a holy life. And this is essentially what Peter means when he tells us that they will even deny the master who bought them. When people think of denying Jesus in our days, what we tend to think of is denying that he was truly God or even that God actually exists. It's, it's the denial of his existence. But this is not the kind of denials Peter is speaking to. The word denial actually means to, to say that one does not know or is not associated with a person or an event. As Jesus famously said to Peter on the night he was betrayed, Truly I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter didn't deny that Jesus existed. He just denied that he knew him. He didn't want to have any association with him because that might make him look bad. And Jesus makes this other claim in Matthew 16, 24. He uses the same word. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He's not saying, Jesus isn't expecting people to deny that they exist, to deny that they're not what they are. He's asking them to deny any claim of lordship on their lives. To say no to themselves and instead to yield to him and to his teaching. He's saying, if you want to follow me, you no longer should live for yourself, but for me, your master. In fact, that's the word Peter uses here. It's the Greek word despotes, where we get the English word despot. It means a person who has absolute authority over another. Absolute control. And these false teachers are denying that Jesus has mastery over them, even though he bought them. They're denying that he is their Lord. The word that he uses for bought is a a word that comes from the marketplace. It's agorazo. Uh, The agora was the marketplace of ancient Greece and Rome. It's where you bought things. It simply means to buy or to purchase as one would buy a slave. And that's the imagery Peter's conveying. Jesus bought them with a price. He paid the price for their disobedience to God the Father. Through his own death, He purchased them out of a life of slavery of sin and he gave them freedom from that wicked slave master. But what these false teachers are saying is is they are speaking the truth and that they are saying you are free from your wicked slave master, sin. Jesus bought that freedom, but guess what? Now you're just free to go on your own. But that's not what happened. Jesus bought them with a price so not just that so they'd be free from sin, but so that they would be slaves of his we were purchased. They don't know, what's going on is they don't understand what slavery to sin really is. It's a slavery to ourselves. 
And so to say, oh, you're free from Christ or free from the wicked slave master to sin, but still follow him. Says they don't really understand what they've been freed from. Christ has freed us to follow him. Notice how Paul uses this imagery of redemption from slavery in Romans chapter 6. Please flip there. Romans chapter 6. The whole chapter is worth looking at, but of course we won't do that for the sake of time. I want to look at particularly verses 16 through 18. Paul writes, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin and be, have become obedient to the heart, from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you have been committed. Paul's point is, you are no longer slaves. The free, freedom you've been given is a freedom to obey. It's not a freedom just to do what you want. So although it's possible that some of these false teachers are denying Jesus' lordship outright, I think it's more than likely what they're teaching is they're just ignoring Christ's claim upon their life. That there's any expectation of righteous living. They're denying that they have any responsibility to follow Jesus. And this clarifies, I think, why Peter decided to introduce himself as a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He wants to emphasize he himself recognizes he's a slave. Not to do what he would want, but to live for his Lord. And now you can see why this false teaching would be so attractive. People can have their cake and eat it too, as we'd say. They can get their freedom from the wrath of God and the the promise of eternal life as well. But to believe such teaching is to essentially deny Christ. And that brings us to the effects of the false teachers. It says it brings upon themselves swift destruction. So the first effect of their teaching is that it destroys themselves. The point is they're not just bringing destruction upon themselves or upon other people, I should say, but upon themselves as well. Primarily upon themselves. Peter's going to clarify this more in the next verse. The second effect that we see in their teaching is that many will follow their sensuality. Many will follow their sensuality. That despite their error and despite the inevitable results of their error, still these teachers are going to have a popular following. People are going to like them. People are going to think they're great and they're going to talk about how wise and wonderful and freeing their teaching is. What's particularly attractive of their, to their followers is the sensuality of these false teachers. People are attracted to them because they want to follow in their licentiousness. They think that looks cool. They think that's freeing. The English word sensuality that the ESV uses is actually a fairly tame word. But what the Greek word actually conveys is anything but tame. It's bestial, actually. The word itself means to have extreme immorality, 
It describes behavior that is completely lacking in any moral restraint. There is no right or wrong under this sort of thinking. So what they're teaching is do whatever you feel like. And you can tell how appealing this would be to anybody. Because that's what drives most people. We do what we want. And the point is that the people follow them and follow their life and teaching because it gives them the freedom to follow their impulses. The teachers have removed any reason for restraint. And that is why the third effect occurs. Christianity will be reviled. As Peter writes, it's because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. The word way, we've seen earlier, it's the word hodos. It means road or truth or path. It's the same word that Peter used in verse 11, chapter uh, 1, verse 11, regarding the path to heaven. It's the right way, so to speak. And Peter deliberately describes Christianity and the gospel as the way of truth in order to contrast it to the way of the false teachers that leads to destruction. The true path leads to eternal life. But these false teachers want to lead people off that path of truth and into the pit. It says the the way of truth will be blasphemed. The word means to speak against with the the intention of to, to slander, to harm somebody's reputation unjustly, to revile them. We typically use this word uh, in reference to God only, it could pertain, it's often used in, um, in Greek to pertain to just any human being slandered. We typically point, use it against God. But that's all it means. It just means to slander, to revile, to bring shame upon. So the behavior of these false teachers is going to be so profane that even unbelievers are going to see the shame in it. Unbelievers have enough moral sensibility to recognize this is wrong. What these false teachers are teaching is disgusting. It's evil. Even the pagans will recognize it. But still, many will follow these teachers. So we've seen the inevitability and the effects of these false teachers. Finally now, beginning at verse 3, we're introduced to the motives And the method of the false teachers. It says, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. The motivation for leading others astray is quite simply greed. They want to make a profit. Want to make a buck. Greed, the word simply means to take advantage of somebody. To exploit them for the sake of Cash. Raw exploitation going on. They recognize that they can get a, if they can get a following, they can make a profit off the people who will follow them. And so they create this teaching that's going to be extremely profitable. Something popular that people will like. They say, you can have the best of both worlds. You can indulge your fleshly appetites and still be forgiven. You can see how appealing that would be. To the unregenerate, no news could be better. 
Because they don't recognize that their slavery is slavery to sin. Christ set us free to be done with sin. Not to go back to it. But these people, they want their sin. They just don't want their consequences. And so they're going to follow anybody that will say, you can do what you want and and you're not going to have any more consequences. That's what people want to be freed from. Not sin. They want to be free from the consequences. And these teachers recognize if I teach this to people, they're going to like me. They're going to they're going to pay big time to hear me tell them, do what you want. And there's no consequences. And people do. The evidence of it is everywhere. People pay big time to have the assurance of these false words. And that's why Peter warns Timothy, sorry, it's why Paul warns Timothy about leaders who are eager to make a profit from teaching the word. Because false teaching and greed are inextricably linked. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. I'm going to read verses 3 through 10. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. False teaching and greed are inextricably linked. And again, people will pay lots of money to hear that they can live however they want as long as they can have the assurance that they won't have to pay the consequences for that behavior. So the methodology of how to create such a big business isn't complicated at all. You just simply need to lie to people and tell them what they want to hear. You exploit them with false words. As Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They're looking for this, is the point. And when they find it, they're going to bring all their friends and say, let's follow this guy. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Because the truth is not what they want. They want to indulge their flesh. And these false teachers capitalize on it with false words. The word that Peter uses is plastos, from where we get 
the English term plastic. It means to form or to mold. It's that which is fabricated, something that's invented. They invent these teachings like a good entrepreneur and then sell it. They mold their teachings to the desires of the hearers and then voila, they're making big bucks. And know how Peter contrasts the made-up teachings of the false teachers with how the prophecies of Scripture came about. As he says in chapter 1, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord, Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Then he says in verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The point is, the, the true prophets didn't make this stuff up. They're not fabricating it. So he's contrasting what the false teachers are doing. They're just getting inventive. And it's not even that creative, to be honest. But what, these, what, the, what the prophets of Scripture produced came from God. As Paul wrote Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching Reproof and training in righteousness. The point is, if it's not based on Scripture, it's made up. It's created. It's a heresy. So don't follow it. Because these people simply want to exploit you. You are a dollar sign in their eyes. They don't care about you. That's why they want to encourage you to destroy your life with sin. You're a means to make a buck. But Peter says, have nothing to do with them. Be wary of them. They're just like a drug addict or an adulterer who, although they know what the consequences of their behavior is going to be, They just can't restrain themselves. They can't say no to the opportunity that's before them. They have to indulge. And they just ignore the fact that there's going to be horrible consequences because they want to indulge right now. The fear of the consequences is not enough to keep them from doing what they're doing. They want to make a buck now, even if it means they might have to pay the price later. They just ignore the consequences. If such a temporal mindset that they ignore what God has told them about such teachings. That's what he says. The, their, their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. The phrase itself means that their condemnation is active. That's what it's trying to convey. It's in pursuit of them. And it's coming fast. What comes to mind is it's, it's like the, a sheriff's posse. When they find out that the, that the bandit is in the next county, they get everybody together and they ride on their horses to go nab them. Or it's like a SEAL team who has just gotten good intel that there's a terrorist at some location. And so they jump in their little birds or their Blackhawks and they rush to the scene to grab the terrorist. They're coming, and they're not asleep. This false teacher's time is short. It says that this condemnation was from long ago. And it appears that this is just a, a broad reference 
that whenever false teachers came up in Scripture, God always warned them of the destructive consequences, what would come upon them when they distort their truth, even stretching back to the garden. God has condemned those who twist His Word to exploit others. So the false teaching isn't any new activity. This is as ancient as it gets. And likewise, their condemnation is not new as well. It's the same condemnation that God has always promised for those who twist what He says for their own benefit or apparent benefit, really to their destruction. It's the same old consequence. They're destroying themselves and others. So what does this mean for us? How do we apply this section on false teaching? I think the, the biggest thing, first and foremost, of course, is to be warned that false teachers are real. But really in light of that, it's to recognize, as I introduced, this is not a game. This is not, we shouldn't speak of false teachers as if they're just people that disagree. They're destructive. And we, we need to be grieved. When we think of false teachers, if we're not grieved by what we hear, we're not grieved by their consequences, something's wrong with us. And we shouldn't look upon people who have followed after them with a sense of smugness. Instead, our hearts should be broken. We should pray for such people and endeavor diligently to try and lead them back to the truth. And that may, that's going to require great patience. In fact, that's what Paul exhorted Timothy to do. He says, when you come across people who are twisting the truth, use the word of God, but exhort them with great patience and instruction. Hold fast to what you're teaching. Preach the word, Timothy, but do it with patience so that they might be um, saved from the error that they've been entrapped by. I'm paraphrasing that. That's the point. Be patient with them and instruct them that they would recognize what they're saying, what they're doing, what they're bringing upon themselves. But I think we should also be proactive in the sense that we need to immerse ourselves in Scripture. I mean, Peter says, these false teachers are going to come in amongst you. I mean, Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, right when he departs, he says, there are going to be elders amongst you, some of your own, that are going to lead people away. In the book of Revelation, Jesus warns about, uh, in the first few chapters of Revelation, Jesus warns about false teaching that had already corrupted many of the churches. It's, it's from amongst us, hopefully not this body of believers, but we'd be naive to think that it would never happen. And so how do we, how do we prevent that? Well, it's, we need to be immersed in the Word of God ourselves. That's why I was encouraging you, read the Bible for yourself, even as I'm preaching. Check to see that what we teach is in line with what the Word of God says. And if there's, a, if there's confusion, if there's misunderstanding, there's nothing wrong with ever going to, to a pastor or elder after church and saying, I don't understand what, why, how you got that here. Can you, can you please explain? Because that's their goal, that's our job, is to explain the truth. If there's confusion, we want to be on the same page. We want unity. And so we're going to strive for that. That's not going to be something that's offensive. It shouldn't be. If done, I think, with a real desire to see the truth. So we need to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. We need to understand what it says. 
But I think also we need to be aware that false teachers are going to come up. And so here's some questions that you can ask yourself in order to avoid being exploited. So as you hear teachings that maybe seem that not in line with what you learned regarding Christianity or what you understand Christianity to teach, what the Bible teaches, ask yourself, where are these new ideas coming from? Is, is this derived from Scripture? Or is it just some, some person's worldly philosophy they want to just kind of incorporate with the Scripture? So try to ask yourself, where is this coming from? If somebody, somebody starts talking, say, just ask a simple question, where do you see that in the Bible? We should be asking ourselves that all the time. In community group, that's the, that, that question should come up four or five times at least. Ask, where, is, where are you getting that idea? Ask, why are people attracted to these false teachers? Remember, these false teachers are going to be popular. So ask, why are they attracted? Is it because they really know how to handle the Word of God? They're willing to say the hard things, even when they're not popular? Or people just like them because they're attracted to their personality or their teaching? They're appealing just in and of themselves. What's the draw? So beware of something like great popularity. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong. I know we know a lot of, obviously, really good teachers that are extremely popular. John MacArthur, John Piper, Al Mohler. I mean, the list can go on and on. So just because somebody's popular doesn't mean they're a false teacher, obviously. But ask why. What's, what, what is it about them that draws people? Is there an unorthodox doctrine? And a good way to check that, obviously, is by going to the Word. But also, what do other teachers... What are other uh, Orthodox teachers saying about them? What do, what do other um, pastors that you trust, what do they say? Because obviously you probably haven't read everything that they've written. You haven't probably heard every sermon they've preached. And there are people that will take the time to investigate, does this line up with Scripture? What are other pastors saying about such doctrines? Beware also if they advocate any sort of free morality. If, if, if they're, especially regarding um, sexuality, does what they teach line up with what the Scripture teaches? So an obvious one for our day and age, if they're saying it's okay for a man and a man or a woman and a woman to marry each other, so-called same-sex marriage, it's heresy. They're a false teacher Or if they're advocating, it's okay to cohabit so you can get to know the person that you like. To see if you're going to be co- uh, compatible for a lifetime. Or if they just kind of ignore the subject altogether. What do they say about morality? Do they have a biblical view of marriage? Do, do they say more than they should regarding sex? I mean, is, are, there, are there sermons immersed with it? I mean, it's not something you want to avoid because the Bible talks about it, but you want to be limited. The point isn't to highlight it unnecessarily like these false teachers did, saying it's free, do what you want. Finally, think of, is there, is, do they have suspect motives? What's in it for the teacher? I mean, is it, is it that they, they need to get more and more people? Are they so obsessed with church growth 
Because that's going to affect their income, their job. Are they trying to sell books? Do they just like being lauded and praised? I mean, do they make a really big deal of their title, of the people they know? I mean, what is it? What's, what's in it for them? And obviously we can't know their motives. But if they're suspect motives, it's, it's worth considering. And so I think finally, the last thing I'd like to say regarding this, how should we respond to false teachers and confusing doc- doctrines? And I think it's, we need to recognize the difference between false teachers and errant teachers. False teachers are deliberately trying to twist the Scripture in order to advocate their own teaching that's not derived from Scripture. They're bad. They're destructive. That's different from an errant teacher. Like there's, there's lots of other churches in our community that we would not agree with on every doctrine. Take those that at, would advocate pedo-baptism, the baptism of children, um, or of infants in particular. Right? We would not do that as a church. But that, we wouldn't say they're false teachers because they're getting that idea from the Scripture. And there's, there's hermeneutical reasons for why we disagree and there's lots of books that have been written and it's worth a conversation to investigate the disagreements on something like baptism. But the difference is, are they getting that idea from just some worldly philosophy because they like it? Or are they getting it from Scripture? So recognize, if, if a teacher is re- truly trying to interpret the text faithfully, they're not a false teacher. It would, be, it would be slanderous, to use the word here, blasphemous, to call them a false teacher. And that, that's not going to do any good at trying to come to a unity of understanding the truth. So we need to be careful with how we throw out the term false teacher. The aim here is to guard Christians from falling away from following Christ. It's not to puff up their mind that, hey, they got the truth and everybody else is just wrong. When you are aware of false teaching... The effect that it should have on our heart is it should break our hearts and make us all the more bold to teach the truth. To teach the truth in in a winsome, compelling, logical manner so that they would be persuaded. And you've got to trust the Lord with the results. And you pray, God, help them see the error of what they're teaching, of what they've been captured by. So that they might follow Christ, they might be redeemed from the pit. And have assurance that they truly are his children. Let's pray. Father, these are challenging things to consider. It's hard to imagine that people having their eyes open to the truth, having heard the gospel, that you have paid for our sins through your death on the cross and you have paid them completely so that there is now no condemnation for us that people would still take that doctrine and use it to advocate licentiousness. And that people would twist your truth to gain a following, to be popular. That they would, they would manipulate your sheep and fleece them just for their own advantage. God, help us to guard ourselves from such teachers and help us to advocate for the truth. 
but to do so with humility, not with any sort of arrogance, but as ambassadors of your word. That we would investigate your scriptures diligently. And that we'd be patient with those who are in opposition so that they might become, they might be set free from their error. God, maybe we, may we as a church be known for our right teaching and our right living. And for our great humility, help us to be known as a humble church that does not put our confidence in ourselves or our thinking or our strength, but in our love of your word, our confidence in your word, that that's what would define us and our love for all people, not just those who agree with us, but our love for those who hate us, that we would still love them and that our love would be apparent to all because we want to honor you. We want to be like you. And so we ask that you would do these things in Christ's name. Amen.